Chapter 10 Blessed are the Pure in Heart We come now to what is undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of Holy Scripture. Anyone who realizes even something of the meaning of the words, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, can approach them only with a sense of awe and of complete inadequacy. This statement, of course, has engaged the attention of God's people ever since it was first uttered, and many great volumes have been written in an attempt to expound on it. Obviously, therefore, one cannot hope to deal with it in any exhaustive sense in just one chapter. Indeed, no one can ever exhaust this verse. In spite of all that has been written and preached, it still eludes us. Our best plan, perhaps, is just to try to grasp something of its central meaning and emphasis. Once again, it is important, I feel, to consider it in its setting and to study its relationship to the other Beatitudes. As we have seen, our Lord did not select these statements at random. Clearly, there was a definite sequence of thought, and it is our business to try to discover this. Of course, we must always be very careful as we do that. It is interesting to try to discover the order and the sequence in Scripture, but it is very easy to impose upon the sacred text our own ideas as to order and sequence. An analysis of the books of the Bible can be a very useful thing indeed. But there is always the danger that, by imposing our analysis on the Scripture, we shall thereby distort its message. As we seek in this way to discover the order, we must bear that warning in mind. I suggest that the following is a possible way of understanding the sequence. The first question which must be answered is, why is this statement put here? You would have thought, perhaps, that it should have come at the beginning, because the vision of God has always been regarded by God's people as the summum bonum. It is the ultimate goal of every endeavor. To see God is the whole purpose of all religion. And yet here it is, not at the beginning, not at the end, not even in the exact middle. That at once must raise the question in our minds, why does it come just here? A possible analysis which commends itself to me is as follows. I regard the sixth verse as providing the explanation. It comes, as I think we saw when we dealt with it, in the center. The first three Beatitudes lead up to it, and these other Beatitudes follow it. If we regard verse 6 as a kind of watershed, I think it helps us to understand why this particular statement comes at this point. Now, the first three Beatitudes were concerned with our need, our consciousness of need, poor in spirit, mourning because of our sinfulness, meek as the result of a true understanding of the nature of self and its great egocentricity, that terrible thing that has ruined the whole of life. These three emphasize the vital importance of a deep awareness of need. Then comes the great statement of the satisfaction of the need, God's provision for it. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Having realized the need, we hunger and thirst, and then God comes with his wondrous answer that we shall be filled, fully satisfied. From there on, we are looking at the result of that satisfaction, the result of being filled. We become merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. After that, there is the outcome of all this, persecuted for righteousness' sake. That, I suggest, is the way of approach to this passage. It leads up to the central statement about hungering and thirsting, and then describes the results that follow. 
In the first three, we are going up one side of the mountain, as it were. We reach the summit in the fourth, and then we come down on the other side. But there is a closer correspondence even than that. It seems to me that the three Beatitudes which follow the central statement in verse 6 correspond to the first three that lead up to it. The merciful are those who realize their poverty of spirit. They realize that they have nothing in themselves at all. As we have seen, that is the most essential step to becoming merciful. It is only when a man has reached that view of himself that he will have the right view of others. So we find that the man who realizes he is poor in spirit and who is utterly dependent upon God is the man who is merciful to others. It follows from that that this second statement, which we are now considering, namely, blessed are the pure in heart, also corresponds to the second statement in the first group, which was, blessed are they that mourn. What did they mourn about? We saw that they were mourning about the state of their hearts. They were mourning about their sinfulness. They were mourning not only because they did things that were wrong, but still more because they ever wanted to do wrong. They realized the central perversion in their character and personality. It was that which caused them to mourn. Very well, then. Here is something which corresponds to that. Blessed are the pure in heart. Who are the pure in heart? Essentially, as I am going to show you, they are those who are mourning about the impurity of their hearts, because the only way to have a pure heart is to realize you have an impure heart, and to mourn about it to such an extent that you do that which alone can lead to cleansing and purity. And in exactly the same way, when we come to discuss the peacemakers, we shall find that the peacemakers are those that are meek. If a person is not meek, he is not likely to be a peacemaker. I do not want to stay longer with this matter of order, but I think it is a possible way of discovering what underlies the precise arrangement which our Lord adopted. We take the three steps in order of need, then we come to the satisfaction. Then we look at the results that follow and find that they correspond precisely to the three that lead up to it. This means that, in this amazing and glorious statement about blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, which comes at this particular point, the emphasis is upon the purity of heart and not upon the promise. If we look at it from that standpoint, I think it will enable us to see why our Lord took this precise order. Here then we are face to face with one of the most magnificent and yet one of the most solemnizing and searching statements which can be found anywhere in Scripture. It is, of course, the very essence of the Christian position and of the Christian teaching. Blessed are the pure in heart. That is what Christianity is about. That is its message. Perhaps the best way of considering it is once more to take the various terms and to examine them one by one. We begin, of course, with the heart. Here, I repeat, is something which is very characteristic of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is concerned about the heart, all its emphasis is upon the heart. Read the accounts which we have in the Gospels of the teaching of our blessed Lord, and you will find that all along he is talking about the heart. The same is true in the Old Testament. Our Lord undoubtedly put this emphasis here because of the Pharisees. It was his great charge against them always that they were interested in the outside of the pots and platters and ignored the inside. Looked at externally, they were without spot but their inward parts were full of ravening and wickedness. They were most concerned about the external injunctions of religion, but they forgot the weightier matters of the law, namely love to God and the love of one's neighbor.
So here our Lord puts this great emphasis upon it again. The heart is the whole center of his teaching. Let us for a moment consider this emphasis in terms of a few negatives. He puts his emphasis upon the heart and not upon the head. Blessed are the pure in heart. He does not commend those who are intellectual. His interest is in the heart. In other words, we have to remind ourselves again that the Christian faith is ultimately not only a matter of doctrine or understanding or of intellect. It is a condition of the heart. Let me hasten to add that the doctrine is absolutely essential. The intellectual apprehension is absolutely essential. Understanding is vital. But it is not only that. We must ever beware lest we stop at giving only an intellectual assent to the faith or to a given number of propositions. We have to do that, but the terrible danger is that we stop at that. When people have had merely an intellectual interest in these matters, it has oftentimes been a curse to the church. This applies not only to doctrine and theology. You can have a purely mechanical interest in the Word of God, so that merely to be a student of the Bible does not mean that all is well. Those who are interested only in the mechanics of exposition are in no better position than the purely academic theologians. Our Lord says that this is not essentially a matter of the head. It is that, but it is not only that. But again, why is it that he puts his emphasis upon the heart rather than upon externalities and conduct? The Pharisees, you'll remember, were always ready to reduce the way of life and righteousness to a mere matter of conduct, ethics, and behavior. How this gospel finds us all out. Those of you who disliked the intellectual emphasis were probably saying amen, as I emphasized that first point. Yes, that is quite right, you said. It is not intellectual, it is the life that matters. Be careful, for Christianity is also not primarily a matter of conduct and external behavior. It starts with this question. What is the state of the heart? What is meant by this term, the heart? According to the general scriptural usage of the term, the heart means the center of the personality. It does not merely mean the seat of the affections and the emotions. This beatitude is not a statement to the effect that the Christian faith is something primarily emotional, not intellectual, or pertaining to the will. Not at all. The heart in scripture includes the three. It is the center of man's being and personality. It is the fount out of which everything else comes. It includes the mind. It includes the will. It includes the heart. It is the total man, and that is the thing which our Lord emphasizes. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are pure, not merely on the surface, but in the center of their being and at the source of their every activity. It is as deep as that. Now that is the first thing. The gospel always emphasizes that. It starts with the heart. Then secondly, it emphasizes that the heart is always the seat of all our troubles. You remember how our Lord put it? Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. The terrible, tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that all man's troubles are due to his environment, and that to change the man, you have nothing to do but to change his environment. That is a tragic fallacy. It overlooks the fact that it was in paradise that man fell. It was in a perfect environment that he first went wrong. So to put man in a perfect environment cannot solve his problems. No. No, it is out of the heart that these things arise. Take any problem in life, anything that leads to wretchedness, 
Find out its cause, and you'll always discover that it comes from the heart somewhere, from some unworthy desire in somebody, in an individual, in a group, or in a nation. All our troubles arise out of this human heart, which we are told by Jeremiah is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In other words, the gospel not only tells us that all these problems arise out of the heart, but that they do so because the heart of man, as the result of the fall and as the result of sin, is, as scripture puts it, desperately wicked and deceitful. Man's troubles, in other words, are at the very center of his being, so that merely to develop his intellect is not going to solve his problems. We should all be aware that education alone does not make a good man. A man may be highly educated and yet be an utterly wicked person. The problem is in the center, so that mere schemes for intellectual development cannot put us right. Neither can these efforts to improve the environment do so alone. Our tragic failure to realize this is responsible for the state of the world at this moment. The trouble is in the heart, and the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. That is the problem. Now we come to the second term. Blessed, says our Lord, are the pure in heart. And you see again how packed with doctrine these beatitudes are. We have just been looking at the human heart. Is anybody prepared to say in light of that, that man can make himself a Christian? You can see God only when you are pure in heart. And we have just seen what we are by nature. It is a complete antithesis. Nothing could be further removed from God. What the gospel proposes to do is to bring us out of the terrible pit and to raise us up to the heavens. It is supernatural. Therefore, let us look at it in terms of definition. What does our Lord mean by pure in heart? It is generally agreed that the word has at any rate two main meanings. One meaning is that it is without hypocrisy. It means, if you like, single. You remember our Lord talks about the evil eye later on in this Sermon on the Mount. He says, If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. This pureness of heart, therefore, corresponds to singleness. It means, if you like, without folds. It is open, nothing hidden. You can describe it as sincerity. It means single-minded or single-eyed devotion. One of the best definitions of purity is given in Psalm 86:11. Unite my heart to fear thy name. The trouble with us is our divided heart. Is not that my whole problem, face to face with God? One part of me wants to know God and worship God and please God, but another part wants something else. You remember the way Paul expresses it in Romans 7. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Now the pure heart is the heart that is no longer divided, and that is why the psalmist, having understood his trouble, prayed the Lord to unite my heart to fear thy name. Make it one, he seems to say. Make it single. Take out the pleats and the folds. Let it be whole. Let it be one. Let it be sincere. Let it be entirely free from any hypocrisy. But that is not the only meaning of this term purity. It also obviously carries the further meaning of cleansed, without defilement. In Revelation 21:27. John tells us concerning the people who are to be admitted into the heavenly Jerusalem that is to come, 
that there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 22.14 we read, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs, and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Nothing that is unclean or impure, or has any defiling touch about it, shall enter into the heavenly Jerusalem. But perhaps we can perfectly express it by saying that being pure in heart means to be like the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, perfect and spotless and pure and entire. Analyzing it a little, we can say that it means we have an undivided love which regards God as our highest good and which is concerned only about loving God. To be pure in heart, in other words, means to keep the first and great commandment which is that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Reducing it still further, it means that we should live to the glory of God in every respect, and that that should be the supreme desire of our life. It means that we desire God, that we desire to know him, that we desire to love him and to serve him. And our Lord states here that only those who are like that shall see God. That is why I say that this is one of the most solemnizing statements in Holy Scripture. There is a parallel one in the epistle to the Hebrews which speaks of holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. I cannot understand people who object to the preaching of holiness. I'm not referring to the theories about it. I'm talking about preaching holiness itself in the New Testament sense. Because we have this plain, obvious statement of Scripture that without it, no man shall see the Lord. Now, we have been looking at what holiness really means. I ask once more, therefore, whether there is any folly greater than the folly of imagining that you can ever make yourself a Christian. The whole object of Christianity is to bring us to the vision of God, to see God. What, then, is necessary before I can see God? Here is the answer. Holiness, a pure heart, an unmixed condition of being. Yet men and women would reduce all this to just a little matter of decency, of morality, or an intellectual interest in the doctrines of the Christian faith. But nothing less than the whole person is involved. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. In the spiritual realm, you cannot mix light and darkness. You cannot mix black and white. You cannot mix Christ and Baal. There is no connection between them. Obviously, therefore, only those who are like him can see God and be in his presence. That is why we must be pure in heart before we see God. What is meant by the vision of God? What is meant by saying we shall see God? Here again is a matter which has been often written about throughout the long history of the Christian church. Some of the great fathers and the early teachers in the church were much attracted by it and gave a great deal of thought to the problem. Did it really mean that in the glorified state we should see God with the naked eye or not? That was their great problem. Was it objective and visible, or was it purely spiritual? Now, it seems to me that ultimately that is a question that cannot be answered. I can only put evidence before you. There are statements made in Scripture which seem to indicate one or the other, but at any rate we can say this much. You remember what happened to Moses. 
On one occasion, God took him aside and placed him in the cleft of a rock and said he was going to give Moses a vision of himself, but told him that he should see only his back parts, suggesting, surely, that to see God is impossible. The theophanies of the Old Testament, namely those occasions when the angel of the covenant appeared in the form of man, surely suggest that this seeing is impossible in a physical sense. Then you remember the statements made by our Lord himself. He turned to the people and said on one occasion, Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape, suggesting that there is a shape. Again he said, Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. You have not seen the Father, said our Lord in effect to the people, but I who am of God have seen the Father. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. There are the statements by which we are confronted. Then you remember on another occasion he said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. One of the most cryptic of all the statements. This is what Scripture says on the matter, and it does seem to me that on the whole, it is unprofitable to spend our time on it. We just do not know. The very being of God is so transcendent and eternal that all our efforts to arrive at an understanding are doomed at the very outset to failure. Scripture itself, it seems to me, I say it with reverence, does not attempt to give us an adequate conception of the being of God. Why? Because of the glory of God. Our terms are so inadequate and our minds are so small and finite that there is a danger in any attempt at a description of God and his glory. All we know is that there is this glorious promise that, in some way or other, the pure in heart shall see God. I suggest, therefore, that it means something like this. As with all the other Beatitudes, the promise is partly fulfilled here and now. In a sense, there is a vision of God even while we are in this world. Christian people can see God in a sense that nobody else can. The Christian can see God in nature, whereas the non-Christian cannot. The Christian sees God in the events of history. There is a vision possible to the eye of faith that no one else has. But there is a seeing also in the sense of knowing him, a sense of feeling he is near and enjoying his presence. You remember what we are told about Moses in that great 11th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. That is a part of it, and that is something that is possible to us here and now. Blessed are the pure in heart. Imperfect as we are, we can claim that even now we are seeing God in that sense. We are seeing Him who is invisible. Another way we see Him is in our own experience, in His gracious dealings with us. Do we not say we see the hand of our Lord upon us in this and that? That is part of the seeing of God. But, of course, that is a mere nothing as compared with what is yet to be. Now we see through a glass darkly. We see in a way we had not seen before, but it is all still much of an enigma. But then we shall see face to face. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, John says, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is surely the most amazing thing that has ever been said to man, that you and I, such as we are, pressed with all the problems and troubles of this modern world, are going to see him face to face. If we but grasp this, it would revolutionize our lives.
You and I are meant for the audience chamber of God. You and I are being prepared to enter into the presence of the King of Kings. Do you believe it? Do you know it is true of you? Do you realize that a day is coming when you are going to see the blessed God face to face? Not as in a glass darkly, but face to face. Surely the moment we grasp this, everything else pales into insignificance. You and I are going to enjoy God and to spend our eternity in his glorious and eternal presence. Read the book of the Revelation and listen to the redeemed of the Lord as they praise him and ascribe all glory to him. The blessedness is inconceivable beyond our imagination. And we are destined for that. The pure in heart shall see God. Nothing less than that. How foolish we are to rob ourselves of these glories that are here held out before our wondering gaze. Have you in a partial sense already seen God? Do you realize you are being prepared for this? And do you set your affection on it? Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Are you looking at these things which are unseen and eternal? Do you spend time in meditating upon the glory that yet awaits you? If you do, the greatest concern of your life will be to have a pure heart. But how can our hearts become pure? Here again is a great theme which has occupied attention throughout the centuries. There are two great ideas. First, there are those who say there is only one thing to do, and we must become monks and segregate ourselves from the world. It is a whole-time job, they say. If I'm going to have this pure heart, I have not time for anything else. There you have the whole idea of monasticism. We must not stay with that, but I would simply point out in passing that it is utterly unscriptural. It is not to be found in the New Testament, for it is something you and I can never do. All such efforts at self-cleansing are doomed to failure. The way of the scriptures is rather this. All you and I can do is to realize the blackness of our hearts as they are by nature. And as we do so, we shall join David in the prayer, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We shall join Joseph Hart in saying, "'Tis thine to cleanse the heart, to sanctify the soul, to pour fresh life in every part, and new create the whole." You can start trying to clean your heart, but at the end of your long life, it will be as black as it was at the beginning, perhaps blacker. No, it is God alone who can do it, and thank God he has promised to do it. The only way in which we can have a clean heart is for the Holy Spirit to enter into us and to cleanse it for us. Only his indwelling and working within can purify the heart. And he does it by working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Paul's confidence was this, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is my only hope. I am in his hands. And the process is going on. God is dealing with me, and my heart is being cleansed. God has set his hand to this task, and I know, because of that, that a day is coming when I shall be faultless and blameless, without spot or wrinkle, without any defilement. I shall be able to enter into the gate of the holy city, leaving everything that is unclean outside, solely because he is doing it. That does not mean that I therefore remain passive in the matter. I believe that the work is God's, 
But I also believe what James says, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. I want God to draw nigh to me, because if he does not, my heart will remain black. How is God going to draw nigh to me? You draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you, says James. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The fact that I know that I cannot ultimately purify and cleanse my heart in an absolute sense does not mean that I should walk in the gutters of life waiting for God to cleanse me. I must do everything I can and still know it is not enough and that he must do it finally. Or listen again to what Paul says. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yes, but mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Strangle them, get rid of them, get rid of everything that stands between you and the goal you are aiming at. Mortify, put it to death. If ye through the Spirit, he says again to the Romans, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. All I have tried to say can be put like this. You're going to see God. Do you not agree that this is the biggest, the most momentous, the most tremendous thing that you can ever be told? Is it your supreme object, desire, and ambition to see God? If it is, and if you believe this gospel, you must agree with John. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The time is short. You and I have not long to prepare. The great reception is at hand. In a sense, the ceremonial is all prepared. You and I are waiting for the audience with the king. Are you looking forward to it? Are you preparing yourself for it? Don't you feel ashamed at this moment that you are wasting your time on things that not only will be of no value to you on that great occasion, but of which you will then be ashamed? You and I, creatures of time as we appear to be, are going to see God and bask in his eternal glory forever and ever. Our one confidence is that he is working in us and preparing us for that. But let us also work and purify ourselves, even as he is pure.